Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. I want to take some time tonight to talk to you from the book of James. The little book of James. The mistreated little book of James. James, if you talk to people, most people will tell you James is a very, very difficult book to understand. And some even suggest that James is the Proverbs of the New Testament because they just, it's got a piece here and a piece there and a piece here and a piece there. And in fact, I want to share with you tonight that I don't believe that's true at all. I think James is a book that is well detailed and it's, it's just a beautiful book to study. Look at James chapter 1 and incidentally I will be quoting scriptures but I'll not be looking them up because I have tremors and tremors and looking up in the Bible do not go along together. So I prepare ahead of time. I'll make you look but I'm not, I've got it all written out here already. When you look at the first verse of the book of James it says, James a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. I'd like to take just a few minutes to show you that this idea, the Proverbs of the New Testament or difficult problems or whatever it might be, is not true at all because I believe James wrote a wonderful dissertation, smooth flowing book, and right to the point. And he just, he's overwhelming. I especially, uh, considering some things that have been in my past, I especially like the way he details things here. But before we begin to discuss the book of James, we got to figure out who James is. There are four James in the Bible. The first one we know quite well because he's one of the apostles of the Lord and he's one of the uh, James and John duo, the, the thunderclouds, if you might, or the uh, whatever, dynamic duo of James and, J and John. And they were brothers and they were in the fishing industry and I think probably they were a part of the overall with Peter and Peter's father and I think it was a rather large and wealthy industry and I know that there are times when you can find James being mentioned in some pretty exclusive circles and so I don't think uh, James was just a, a guy who went out in his fishing boat on Thursdays and loaded up a load of fish and was happy. I think this was, this was an industry in which they were involved. <clears throat> and he and his brother, as well as Peter, were willing to set aside that industry to follow Jesus Christ and to serve Jesus Christ. Uh, they, they were known, James and John, the dynamic duo. They were the one who had the unique mother. We don't get a lot of peaks of mothers in Scripture, but it was James and John. You remember their mother? 
Oh, uh, Jesus, could you make sure that they get to sit on right beside you in heaven, you know? Uh, I want my boys in a good place. Well, they, that probably isn't going to happen, but James and John, that James, we know that that James... Uh, went to be with the Lord very early on. He was one of the first martyrs, so we can count him out. There are two other James in Scripture of lesser importance, Alphaeus uh, and uh, the son of Alphaeus and the father of, uh, well, let me find out where I am, the, the father of Judas. And the two of them are minor mentioned in Scripture, but they really have no central part. So we know that they are not the James, which, oh, incidentally, I might, I, I said there are four James in the Bible. None of them were bank robbers. None of them were Jesse. So we got that taken care of. We're ahead of the game right there. The other James <clears throat> is much better known. The, the other James was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, a successful pastor, a dynamic man, was the head of the Jerusalem council, or the spokesman for it, if you might, was well-respected, <coughs> not COVID, cough, just, he was a very well-respected man, he is seen in Scripture, but he was not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ during the lifetime of Christ. He also was one of the brothers who suggested to Christ that if he really wanted to be well-known, if he wanted to be uh, not notoriety in his life, uh, he should go up to Jerusalem when the festival was on and get himself killed, and then everybody would know all about him. He was, as a typical brother would do, he was the brother of Jesus Christ. And we know a great deal about him because he had a very successful ministry and was a rather a dynamic uh, testimony for Jesus Christ all the way through. So we see that this portion of Scripture, by this James, he begins by saying, uh, I, uh, let's see, my brethren, I count it a joy when you fall in the various trials. Uh, he, le he leads us, he, he gives us this, this, well, let me start again here. He's the James who in, his first, in the first verse of his first, he says to the, uh, the, the bondservant of Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are scattered abroad. Now, it is, it is something that we need to stop and look at. It's interesting that James follows the book of Hebrews. These two have a great deal in common. The book of Hebrews was written... Because there were believers, Jewish believers, when they received Jesus Christ as personal Savior, they were thrown out of their houses, they were thrown out of their synagogues, they had no place, their families disowned them, and they were turned into the streets, they had nowhere to turn. And they were in desperate straits. 
And some of them, the book of Hebrews was written to, to kind of jack them up. Some of them were in desperate straits and, and saying, I just can't do it, and I'm going to go back to the synagogue. I'm going to turn my back on Jesus Christ and go back to the synagogue because of the terrible persecution that they were entering. Hebrews talks about it. James directs his very thoughts to that problem. Folks, he is saying, buckle up because there are going to be problems. But it's James who has a continuity here. He is clear in all that he says. Look at verse 2, if you would. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may perfect, be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally and without reproach, and it shall be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as the flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat than it withers the grass and its flower falls and its beautiful appearance, appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he is approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those that love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. I'm going to look first at the reality regarding trouble. Verse 2, my brethren, Count it joy when you fall into troubles. Have you ever had the thought, I would like to live a life without trouble? It would be so good if there were no troubles. There is a place in northern Chile, it never storms, never storms. In the morning, coming up over the mountains, you can see the sun come up. And in the evening, you turn the other way and the sun goes down. And it never storms. A peaceful place all the time. Ideal? Well, not exactly. It's the worst desert in the world. And that's the way we would be if everything were handed to us. We would be lacking tremendously if we never had a problem. Someone said, show me the man with no troubles, and I'll show you a dead man. Because he is the only one who no longer has problems. Everyone experiences trouble. Some are faced with earth-shaking troubles, death of a loved one, 
serious accident or illness, or probably the most debilitating, especially those who have gone through the problem, depression. It is impossible for someone who has never experienced a depression to know the agony that's involved in this. And yet, God allows it. Others seem to have simple problems like feelings of rejection or lack of self-conscious or confidence or job-related stress. You who are here tonight can be saying like the spiritualist, nobody knows the trouble I have seen, nobody knows but Jesus. And some of us sometimes say, and I'm not even sure he knows. You know, it just goes to the point where uh, it's too much. But James says, verse 2, when we fall into trouble. Now, we're not talking about inducement for sin. That's not a part of the program at all. Understand that James is dealing with external pressures. People who have received Jesus Christ, primarily, this is who he's talking about, people who have received Jesus Christ and are feeling the pressure as a result of it. But this is, that's not the only time. You know, Christians, believe it or not, Christians have trouble. There are things that happen to believers that we just say it's, it's trouble, it's pressure. If you know Jesus Christ as personal Savior, though, understand the external pressure is the only way Satan can attack you. He cannot do anything internally because you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So he has to work outside the, the area. He has to do the best by guessing what he's, you know, whatever it might be. He doesn't know what you're thinking. Well, sometimes your actions show what you're thinking. But he has to work externally. James is saying, this is where the pressure is coming from. So your reaction to pressure is found in this same verse, in verse 2. And it's a little hard for us to grasp, maybe, but it's... It's there. It says, count is all joy. This is a hard saying. We must understand testings, troubles, for what they are. They are opportunities of growth. They are opportunities to understand other people's problems. I'll mention that again in just a minute. But remember uh, <clears throat> that, that verse that everybody loves to quote, uh, Romans 8.28? That really is true. For we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. That really is true. For you and me, when the troubles strike, our position should not be, oh God, what now? But it should be, bring it on. Let me have it. 
teach me what you're trying to teach me through this so I can use it for your glory. The pressure ought not make us bend, folks. I'm going to give you a little story. I, uh, my wife and I were faced with a crisis in my ministry. I had a problem. I kept passing out all the time, like half a dozen times a day. And they couldn't figure out what the problem was. And I struggled with it and struggled with it. And finally, the cardiologist, they gave me every test you could think of. I lost my insurance. They just happened to not write in my area, you know that? Anyway, uh, uh, the, uh, the cardiologist set me down and said, we don't know what's causing the problem, but we do know what's going to happen. If you don't get out of the pressure, you're going to die. And it will be rather soon. So, well, God took care of that. That was a, that was a problem. But... God took care of every detail of that problem, and my wife and I ended up with a job. I had to leave the pastorate. My wife and I ended up with a job going around the nation. I would drive a semi. Now, that's a whole new, different story, but I'll drive a semi around the nation with test booths doing hearing conservation work. And we'd go throughout the nation, wherever the company sent us, and we'd go into these factories and railroads and all sorts of places, airlines, and do, teach them how to keep their hearing and show them how to put in earplugs and then test them to see how well they were doing. My job was to go in and do all the paperwork and do all the teaching. My wife's job was to stay in the unit and do all the testing. So. I usually had time, while she's doing the testing, I had time to explore. Well, I was in the factory, the Estwing factory. Anybody hear of Estwing? If you're a carpenter, you know Estwing. <clears throat> we were in the Estwing hammer factory. And uh, this gentleman was kind of hanging around, not seeming to do anything. And I said, so what's your job here? And he said, uh, when you got a minute, I'd like to show you. Okay, so when I had a few minutes, I said, all right, show me. So he takes me in this side room and he said, I love to do this. And he gathered hammers. He had boxes of hammers, sears, uh, ace hardware, you know, all kinds of people's hammers. And he lined up about six hammers on a shelf and an S-wing hammer. And he had this gadget that he set the hammer in, pulled the arm over, and then flipped the switch and it would start putting pressure on the handle. It had the head locked in, putting pressure on the handle. And he'd say, watch this, and he'd put the pressure on until the handle would break. And it would, you know, all of them, however much pressure we watched, and each one had a certain amount of pressure, and then it would break. And he put the S-wing hammer in the clamp, and he said, now watch this. Flip the switch, the pressure went up, and I saw it go up and up and up, and then it just sat there and nothing happened to the hammer. Now the pressure was way beyond any other hammer. All of them had broken much before that, not the S-wing. 
I said, the S-string is not going to break. He said, no, it doesn't. It stands up under the pressure. It's designed that way. I said, what happens if, uh, if it breaks, if you do an S-string? Because he said, I don't I, you do the rest of these hammers all the time, only to show off. But he said, I regularly test the S-string hammers to make sure. Because I want to know that they will not fail. So what happens if they do? He said, we shut the factory down and figure out what the problem is. Well, that's the way a Christian is, folks. We can be put in the clamp, and the pressure can be put on. But folks, as long as we recognize that it is a joy to go through that, that may not be fun, but it's a joy to be able to stand up and say, bring it on, I can handle it. God allows us to be tested. There are two examples of testing, and I think the outstanding one is Job. I can't imagine anyone who could go through the testing that Job went through and come out the other side saying, bring it on, Lord. I'm ready, ready to go. The other one is Mary. I think of Mary and all that she went through, and we don't, we, I don't think we have a glimpse of all that Mary went through after that announcement was made. The culture was such and the situation was such that Mary was put under intense pressure. And you find the scripture saying, and Mary put these things in her heart and praised the Lord. That's what we need to do, folks. Verse, look at verses 3 and 4. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, and let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Testing produces a steadfast saint. He does not waver every time something comes his way. He is able to stand up and say, I love the Lord in the worst situation. Romans chapter 5 verses 3, and through, 3 through 5 has very much the same thing. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not a shame, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. We glory in tribulation. Now verse 5 says that to handle tribulation, to handle testing, we have to have wisdom. And there is only one source for wisdom, and that's our Lord. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. This is where many people say, well, this is, this James branches out here and goes someplace else, and that's what, you know, he just goes a little bit here and a little bit there. But I think he's right, staying right in line all the way. What he is really saying is if you lack wisdom to handle the trial under which you are going, ask God, and he will take care of the problem. Teach me Lord, by testing me, but give me the strength and the wisdom to be able to do it.
Now, the critical thing is, we must believe that God will. We must believe that God will give us the wisdom and the strength to be able to handle it. Verse 6 says, Let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven by the wind and tossed. You know, there have been studies done. I don't know how, who does them or how many done, they have been done and how they do them. But the, the studies indicate that the large portion of people who pray about things really don't believe God is going to answer the prayer. And that ought to boggle our mind, you know? Our God said, I will. I'll give you the strength. I'll give you the wisdom. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a sea. It seems impossible, doesn't it? But don't kid yourself. Verse 7, for let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. The only way God is going to answer your prayers is if you believe that God is going to answer your prayers. If you believe that God is going to protect you, that he will guide you, that he will strengthen you. In fact, this verse just sort of says, don't kid yourself. If you don't believe it, don't bother to pray because it's not going to happen. The way the prayer is going to get answered is that you believe God will answer, and he will. And you can't disguise it, folks. You can't disguise it because he knows what you're thinking. So if you don't believe he answers, even though you can give the most glamorous and glorious prayer with all the right words and phrasing and all that kind of stuff, if you don't believe it, it's not going to happen. Verse 6, let him ask in faith, wavering nothing. Verse 7, but let not that man suppose he will receive anything of the Lord. Verses 8 through 11, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as the flower of the, sea, the flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen in the burning heat than the withers in the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. There is no way that we can, and he is not again, he is not going off on a, on a tangent here. He is saying, the rich man has everything, but he doesn't believe. And it's, it's just going to wither. It's not going to happen. The double-minded describes us when we falter under testing. Verse 12 is our promise. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those that love him. Same topic. When we are tested, seek God's help, 
Don't give up. Don't look anywhere else. Expect God will direct us. Don't go running off to every Tom, Dick, and Harry and saying, Oh, I got problems. Our God is a great God who will hear our needs, and he already understands them, if we are just willing to believe him. Esther Kerr wrote, Oft times the day seems long, our trials hard to bear. We're tempted to complain, to murmur in despair. But Christ will soon appear to catch his bride away. All tears forever over in God's eternal day. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. Now at this point, beginning in verse 13, James does do a little bit of a shift. Because up until this point, he's been talking about the pressures from outside. But he recognizes there are also pressures from inside. Now I don't know about you, but you know, there are things that I would like that I know I ought not to have. You know, I just think God should provide some things. Like, I'd like a nice, small, twin-engine airplane. I don't think that's too much. God ought to provide that. Now, I haven't flown in 10 years now, so it'll be a little bit of a challenge. But, you know, I... No, and there are things which we think, you know, that would be all right. But we also know that's not God's will in my life. And I think James now is saying in verse 13 through 15, don't let those internal things get the better of you either. Let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each of us is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and, in, and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. We're now looking at kind of the soul of the saint. The soul of the saint up until now has been beat from the outside, and he could say, bring it on, Lord, and I know that you have it all under control. But now he is saying, and there are other problems. And the other problem is, Sometimes, internally, we want things that are not God-pleasing. And it would be easy for us to say, well, God is tempting me about that. James said, don't kid yourself. God is not going to tempt you that way. And don't even think about this concept about the devil made me do it. Because that's a, that's a cop-out. We don't need the devil to make us do it. We have so many of our own things that we can get ourselves in trouble with. We need to just recognize God says, see it for what it is. If it doesn't bring glory to God in our life, then we need to ignore it. When we succumb to in internal temptations, 
It's not God's fault. Don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. But verse 17 reminds us again, God is the giver of good. Everything we have good came from God. I, I saw the logical place to have deep theology, a bumper sticker said, God don't make no junk. And I thought, well, that is pretty good, you know. When God saves you, he doesn't give you up to junk. God will challenge your heart. And when you are tempted with internal temptings, things that you know you ought not to be, we can give it to God and again, he will handle it for us. Every good gift, every perfect gift has come from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Why is he telling us all this? Because if we ask and if we believe. Folks, sometimes your testing is pretty obvious. God needs you to do something. Maybe he needs you to work with someone who has a problem, a particular problem. And it just so happens that you are the one who's already gone through that problem and can lead that other one in the way that he should go. If we believe him, if we ask him, he'll take us through the trial. He will not fail us. If you're facing a challenge tonight in your life, God is still on the throne. He is still the mighty God. And all we need to do is say, bring it on.